We continue through the book of 1 Timothy. This morning we'll be in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Specifically, Paul is addressing doctrine, the importance of doctrine, of sound doctrine. Doctrine is just the teaching of Scripture. It's what the Scripture teaches. I find it a great blessing to have such a tradition of sound doctrine. The Reformed faith, they, they came out of the Catholic Church, and of course they, they wanted to read the Scriptures for themselves. They, the Bible had been hidden from many, many people for centuries. So with new vigor, they, they poured over the Greek and the Hebrew languages of the, the inspired text and went and formulated doctrine that we still use today. We are still blessed The Westminster Confession of Faith certainly is not Scripture, but it's the best compilation of doctrine, of sound doctrine, I believe, that exists. It's popular today, though, to kind of discount confessions, discount catechisms, to discount creeds, all of these old things. They're just, it's for an older age. Today, we we just need the Holy Spirit and our own Bibles. We really don't even need to go to church. We could probably just stay at home and read the Bible, and the Holy Spirit will give us all the wisdom we need. Of course, this is a great fallacy. Most of the heresies that we will talk about this morning could have been foregone just by reading the Scripture properly. And the helps that God's given us, our confessions, our catechisms, our creeds, They just formulate doctrine for us in a way that is rich, rich in heritage, been tested by time. We all have a confession. This is something we've talked about before. Everyone in every church has a confession of faith. They know what they believe about every single doctrine in our confession. But for most people, it's a hidden confession. They they make themselves out to be popes. They are the final arbiter of what's right and wrong in Scripture. Their doctrine is private, and it's not subject to any scrutiny. We think it's much wiser to lean on the doctrine that has been formulated over centuries, been tested by time, as formulated in the ancient confessions and creeds. Again, the Apostles' Creed, the earliest form of doctrine that we probably would profess dates all the way back to the New Testament church or the generations right following it. Everything in it is true. Indeed, these, these aren't Scripture, as we say, but they're kind of fences that kind of guard our understanding of Scripture, that keep us from heresy. And of course, that's not all we have. We have the preaching and the teaching of the Word. We have the Holy Spirit enlivening our minds to understand what is taught, what is read, and what is studied. Indeed, 1 Timothy 4 addresses many of these issues. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Would you please stand for the reading of God's holy inspired word? I'm going to begin in chapter 3, verse 14. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. 
He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is to be received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Amen. Would you please be seated? The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we are so feeble and so frail in body and in soul. Apart from your spirit, we can understand nothing. Not a single spiritual truth will be made alive to us. So we pray once again that you would open our eyes, that you would indeed help us, that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified and his salvation proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Title is Sound Doctrine. We're going to talk about sound doctrine, I believe. There's three things that we can see from this, probably more, but three things in particular we can see from this particular passage of Scripture. First, we'll see that guarding sound doctrine prevents heresy. Guarding sound doctrine. Secondly, we'll see that we're nourished by sound doctrine. Through preaching, we're nourished. And finally, thirdly, we'll see the effects of sound doctrine, which produces godliness. So we're guarding it, we're nourished by it, and we're being affected by it. All three of these things. Remember that this is an instruction from Paul to Timothy, who's a pastor in a church that's been plagued by false teachers, false teaching of all kind. And Paul tells Timothy in chapter 1, of course, that the only motive for anything done in the church is love. The false teachers did not hold to this particular motive. They wanted other things, and we'll talk about those in a moment, but they were destructive They led to all kinds of dissension and ultimately to failure, spiritual failure, in that the church was not glorifying God. So he says, first of all, that doctrine in chapter 1, doctrine and worship must be right. It must be true. You must correct it, Timothy. Then he says that the, the prayers of the people, the worship of the people must be right. It must be for all people. Because God loves all kinds of people, not just those in the church. 
Then we saw that the officers of the church must be committed to a fully integrated life of holiness. It was the last two or three weeks. We've talked about how important it was that the officers of the church be devoted to the apostolic teaching, committed to sound doctrine, and give their life for it. The officers are not to be chosen according to the wisdom of man, Paul said, but only to the glory of God according to the word of God. So these are the things that Timothy is taking in right now. And then the letter continues by saying that we, the church, are a pillar and buttress of the truth. This is a theme all through the letter of Timothy, all through the second letter to Timothy, all through Titus, the importance of doctrine and truth for a church. We need to hold tight to God's word. Sound doctrine. It's actually in the Greek, healthy doctrine. It's like a body, a healthy body gets healthy food. We just got back from a trip and and we weren't eating all that healthy for the past four or five days. It's a lot of junk food. Not all all of it, but a lot of it was not that healthy. And you know, after you've been on a long trip or something and you're not eating well, after a few days, your body just starts to kind of feel raw and kind of crusty and just you don't feel healthy you know you need to get a big old bite of celery and and chop on it you need something healthy that was for you jim you need something green you need you need something healthy what's the same way in our faith we need sound doctrine we might get things that seem like healthy food but they're not they're not healthy it's The Word of God twisted. It's not healthy. So look at verse 1. He says, The Spirit expressly says in the later time, some will depart from the faith, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons, or literally the doctrines of demons. Some will depart from the faith, Paul says. The Spirit has told Paul this. He says, the Spirit has expressly said, in the later times, some will depart from the faith. It was already happening. That's why Paul is writing this letter. By the later times, he doesn't mean like something that happens right before Christ returns. These last days is everywhere from when Jesus ascended into heaven until He returns. Those are the last days. We live in the last days and have for 2,000 years. What will happen? Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. These are always the ways that the church has, has failed and has left true and sound doctrine. It's not some, some demonic church practice where we sacrifice pigs on the stage or something crazy. It's always just a a small little twist, a small little deviation. And false teachers have always deviated from truth in small ways that turn into big things. Peter addresses the same thing as well in 2 Peter 2. He says, False prophets also arose among the people just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Secret. Do you see what they're saying? They're saying this isn't just going to be something that's blatant from the pulpit. It'll be a secret little twisted deviation of truth. 
So we need to guard sound doctrine. This is what Paul wants Timothy to do. And all pastors, all elders have that responsibility to guard sound doctrine. Of course, today we don't have to look far to see such heresy. It started small, maybe. Maybe not. But the teachings of demons have always been popular. Often these teachings are presented by those clothed in light. They appear to be wonderful. But they're wolves in sheep's clothing, as Jesus said. They look like us. But they're lying. They're greedy. They're insincere in their beliefs. Or at least insincere in their motivations. Maybe many of them actually believe what they teach. But their motivation is probably something different. What might that insincerity be? This is verse 2 where he says, Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. These false teachers. He maybe discusses this a bit in chapter 6, verse 5, when he's discussing false teachers. He says that they imagine that godliness is a means of gain. In other words, they're greedy. They want, they want to use the church in their position of influence and teaching to get things, to get power, to get wealth. They're greedy. And certainly this persists. I mean, America is wonderful for many things, but if you're a charlatan, you can make some money. Do you realize that some of the, the greatest false teachers in our land are some of the very richest men in the land? Kenneth Copeland. It's a net worth of $750 million. Gained off of the backs of men and women like you who believe heresy. And he says the right words about a lot of things, doesn't he? He proclaims Jesus. And this is the way heretics are. This is the way false teachers are. It's a twist. It's a slight twist, a slight deviation. So many others. You can do the research yourself. People who preach the gospel and drive Bentleys and have private planes, there's something wrong. Jesus was not like that, was He? He had everything. He had no place to lay His head. Certainly you need to pay your pastor, so I'm not saying that. <laughs> but you can see that there is a twist, can't you? When you see these lavish lifestyles, you know that that betrays a truer and more real motivation for these people. But let's not just throw stones at the obvious low-hanging fruit. There are so many large denominations today that really are based on false teaching. With huge followings, worldwide followings, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, Mormons, Seventh-day Adventists, and many more lesser known. What are the characteristics of most cults or false churches? First of all, they stray from sound apostolic doctrine. They've left the sound doctrine of the Scripture. That's easy to say, but what? Secondly, they have extra-biblical inspired writings. 
They have extra things that supplement the Scriptures that are held up to be just as important. Thirdly, you see that there's a very exclusive nature of the saved. You have to be in that particular church. Now, of course, we would say there is an exclusive nature of the saved. You, you must proclaim Christ and Him alone. There is one name under heaven whereby we must be saved, and that's Jesus Christ. But it's even more exclusive than that. It's their particular sect that has only the right way and everyone else is certainly wrong and damned. But probably most important, you see in almost all of these heresies a devaluation of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. In almost every one of them. Again, the reason we're calling this what it is isn't to just throw stones. You need to be prepared. And you need to have compassion. These are people who are deceived. Their eyes are blinded. They need your love and your compassion. When someone comes and knocks on your door with a white shirt and a black tie, answer the door and talk to them about Jesus. When you see someone proselytizing and you know that they're not Christian. Spend some time talking to them. Or probably closer to home, when you're talking to a Seventh-day Adventist who's describing about all of the food laws that you must follow and why you're wrong to worship on Sunday. And yes, you will be damned if you continue to worship on Sunday and not on Saturday. Have compassion upon them. Talk to them about Jesus Christ. You all know the Gospel well enough. Talk to them. Engage them. So you see, false doctrine is still as effective as ever. Paul highlights other heresies as well. Other things that would become popular and already were popular in his day. Quickly going to highlight verses 3 and 4. He says these people, these false teachers, are going to forbid marriage, require abstinence from foods. And then he elaborates from there. Certainly we're free to eat food. That's his point. And in his day and in today as well, there are churches that teach you can't eat certain foods. It's wrong. It's sinful. That's an unscriptural teaching. That's one of the main things that the apostolic church had to address was the Jewish food laws. From Peter and Acts to now in 1 Timothy and Many other places we see God saying, food is okay. Food is okay. Eat the food that God has given you. The point of all the food laws of the Old Testament was to set the people apart as holy. They were to be set apart. They were to eat clean food. And now Paul says to Timothy that it is holy if received in thanksgiving to God. There's no unclean food. Some of it may not taste as good as other food, but there's no unclean food. You're not sinning by eating squid or pork or whatever. It's made holy, in verse 5 says, it's made holy by the Word of God and prayer. Food is made holy. They've forgotten that In Christ, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected. He doesn't mean we eat everything. We eat rocks and 
You know, he's not saying everything in the sense of everything God has ever created. He's saying everything God created to be eaten for food is good. Again, I know I'm preaching to the choir. Most of you don't have any religious reasons for not eating certain foods, but you know people who do. You need to be equipped. When this comes in your face, and it will, this happened to Mary Kay just a few weeks ago. She was accosted by someone who was telling her that it was wrong for her to eat certain things. And here's why. You need to be equipped. Not that you want to get in a debate about food, but you can take that and push it to Christ. As Paul does. It's made holy by the Word of God and prayer. Verse 4, he says, Everything created by God is good. Nothing is to be rejected. If it's received with thanksgiving... So this is kind of an exhortation for us to pray before we eat. Again, it's not a religious duty. I wouldn't say that. But it's already the practice of the New Testament church to be praying before meals. They were already doing this. And it's actually a wonderful opportunity to show the world that everything we have comes from God. You're thanking God for food in public and in private You should be thanking the Lord. He sustains you. Every breath, every heartbeat, every bite of food comes from God. It's not just a cute tradition. We thank God because he has provided the food for us. So you can see the kinds of errors that Timothy was dealing with. They had an appearance of godliness, but actually they weren't even Christian. They might not have even been big or noticeable errors either. either. They might have been just small little deviations toward Judaism that the church maybe didn't initially notice. Again, this is the way that it seems all heresy starts. It's a small thing because it seems small. But in the end, it's a big thing because it takes our eyes off the target. In flying, I've explained this before. I hope you don't mind me mentioning it again, but there's a rule that we, a rule of thumb we have in in the cockpit called the 60 to 1 rule. It's just geometry. It's based on a 360 degree circle. And if you take 60 degrees of that and you go out one mile, it's six degrees. Sorry, if you go out one mile, it's basically six degrees of a pie. And that pie is one-tenth of, a, of the total, basically. Anyway, the way it works out is that if you're flying on course straight ahead and you're one degree off, In six miles, you'll be a tenth of a mile off. In 60 miles, you'll be one full mile off. One mile from the target. You might still be able to see it, depending on how high you are. It might not be that bad to be one degree off. If you're flying 600 miles, just dead reckoning, and you're one degree off, you're 10 miles off target. You're not going to see the target. If you go 6,000 miles, if you're flying over the ocean, if you're over the Pacific, you'll be 100 miles off target. You won't see the island. You won't see the runway. Whatever the thing is. You see how just a small deviation ends up being a huge, huge problem the farther you let it go. We have to nip heresy in the bud. And how do we do that? We keep a close watch, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. And we have to persist in this. Well, how do you keep a close watch on it? 
You hold me accountable. You hold the teachers accountable to God's word. If I teach anything apart from our confession of faith, I need to be called out. It's all of our responsibilities. It's why electing godly officers is so important, especially elders, because they'll be teaching. It's why having a confessional standard is so critical. Creeds and catechisms are actually valuable, not just an antiquated thing of the past. We're prone to error, and we need to stay strong in the Scriptures. So that's the first point. Guard sound doctrine. Prevents heresy, it prevents error. Secondly, we see also that we're nourished by sound doctrine. Paul gives Timothy a positive encouragement to continue in sound doctrine. And Timothy needed to hear this. Verse 6, he said, if you, put these, sorry, if you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Christ Jesus, trained in the words of faith and of good doctrine that you have followed. Timothy's told through the, all through the letter of the importance of right teaching and sound doctrine. He needs to adequately and accurately pass on these doctrines of the faith. He needs to guard against unsound doctrine and, and really, really strive to maintain sound doctrine. He needs to refute those who teach falsely. And this is what a good servant of Jesus does. A good pastor, a good elder who teaches is going to be doing this. He'll be putting these things before the brothers, which is a way of saying the church. 2 Timothy 3 Paul elaborates. He says, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you've learned it. Timothy was trained by his mother and his grandmother, ladies. You know those from whom you've learned it, and how from infancy you have been acquainted with the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. And then he says, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's all inspired and useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That's the positive encouragement to put these things before the brothers because you've been trained in the words of faith, Paul says, and of the good doctrine. And I know you've followed it, Paul says. I know you've followed this. So keep teaching sound doctrine. But there's a temptation as a pastor or a teacher to kind of try to get fancy like there's you see the world and the world is doing all these glittery flashy things because the bible just is too boring just preaching sermons is just it's not going to be sufficient that's what the world would say we need something more maybe more slick or more secretive or more special Paul comes against that in the very next verse. He says, have nothing to do with irreverent or silly myths. So this is the contrast to teaching sound doctrine. And it's all through the book of 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy as well. Chapter 1, verse 6, he says that many have wandered away into vain discussion. It's not the main thing. Chapter 6, verse 4, he says... This person has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words. Verse 14 of chapter 6. We need to keep 
the command of God unstained and free from reproach. Verse 20, we should avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what falsely is called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. All through the letter, Paul is saying, watch out. Watch out. Keep track of your doctrine and don't get involved in irreverent, silly myths. Timothy, and we all need to guard ourselves against getting derailed by majoring on the minors, speculations, wives' tales, the teachings of demons, Paul calls them. Why would he say that in such strong terms? Because it takes your eyes off the mark, off the target, off the gospel of Jesus Christ, the work, the person, the death and resurrection of our Savior. Now certainly we preach all through the Scriptures, Certainly we're called to do that. But the point is always to point us back to Christ and His work. To hold on to the sound doctrine. I'm not saying minor doctrinal issues are not important. They are. They're very important. But the center of our doctrine and practice must be Jesus Christ. It must be. Everything that He did, everything that He is, is our focus. There are temptations, though, to do other things. And, of course, they proliferated as time has gone on. And it's so easy to focus on things that aren't central to the gospel. The churches that focus specifically on the gifts of the Holy Spirit or getting to a higher spiritual level or something of that nature. Or to focus on specifically and almost always on the details and mysteries of the end times. You can see how even biblical doctrines taken out of really a biblical preference can be disastrous to a church. We want to focus on the plain exposition of the Scriptures. The Gospel. It's the work of our elders to keep the Gospel of Jesus Christ in the forefront. To keep sound doctrine alive. To put this before the brothers. Because this is what nourishes our souls. I remember I, I took a, a seminary class many, many years ago. This is actually before I was a Reformed believer. But the class was called Church Growth. And it was specific ways to grow a church. And really the, the emphasis of the, the class was that we can teach a monkey to grow a church. It's not hard. It's the same way you grow a YMCA or the same way you grow any other little organization that lives in a building. It needs to be comfortable. It needs to have well-marked parking lots. It needs to have a lot of people greeting and touching, etc., etc., etc. You don't want to challenge people. You want them always to feel accepted. That's not what our church is about. We're committed to preaching and teaching the Word of God. This is of primary importance. In this way, God is glorified. And in this way, all of your needs are met. Every one of them. But the world would say, well, we need to laugh more. We're so sad in our lives. We need to come to church and laugh. Or we, need, we need to be inspired. We need to be inspired and motivated. We need a Joel Osteen's church is amazingly large. Why? Because he...
teaches sound doctrine? Is that why it's so large? You know the answer. You hardly get Scripture in his church. But he's grown a a really large church. And he's a very wealthy man. Well, we need to talk less about sin and hell. Stop challenging people to evaluate their souls. That's just, you're never going to grow a church like that. We need shorter sermons and services. We need, we need to be comfortable and get to lunch quickly. We need, we need, we need, we need. So, of course, we want to love people. But our firm belief is that what you need more than anything is the Word of God. Exalting Jesus Christ. What you need is found by grace through faith in Christ as revealed in Scripture. Period. That's what you need. And when you consume your daily bread... And then you come to church on Wednesday and on Sunday and on Sunday again. And you consume the preached word and the taught word of God. Sitting under regular preaching and teaching. This is where you're strengthened. This is where you're nourished. And in this way, God equips you. He nourishes your soul. Third point. We see the effects of sound doctrine in this passage as well. Not only do we need to guard it, not only does it nourish our souls, but we see that it produces godliness. He says in verse 7, train yourself for godliness. Remember the context is doctrine and false teaching. He says, train yourself for godliness. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way, holding promise for the present life and the life to come. We live in an age that is obsessed with health and fitness I mean, marathons a hundred years ago weren't even a thing. Nobody went to the gym, really, unless they were training for the Olympics or they were a boxer or something like that. Now it's mainstream. Now we've all probably been to a gym. Staying physically fit is almost like an unwritten 11th commandment or something for many people. I'm certainly not advocating gluttony or laziness. But the fitness culture certainly seems to have consumed many folks. And Timothy may have been one of these people for Paul to write this. Maybe he was one who was at the gymnasium. And that's the Greek word, the gymnastic that he uses. Gymnastic is of value. Is of some value, he says. To live a life devoted to physical health but devoid of spiritual health certainly is unwise. He wants Timothy to train himself for godliness. That's the most important part and certainly the most difficult thing in life is training yourself for godliness by regular consumption of the bread of life. The King James, I like the translation a little bit better. It says, for bodily exercise profits little. And that's more, probably more literal to the Greek anyway. Bodily exercise profits little. I think that hits the mark. Healthy life doesn't profit your soul. There are many healthy people who have died and their souls have perished. The greatest need of the paralyzed man lowered in front of Jesus wasn't to be able to walk again. That was not his greatest need. His greatest need was to have his sins forgiven. 
Do you focus on your health more than your soul? Do you focus on your body more than your spiritual life? Can you imagine the person who's regularly and faithfully taken care of their body for 75, 80 years and then died apart from Christ? What a waste. And yet this appears to be Paul's argument. In 1 Corinthians 9, he he adds to this argument. Verse 25, he says, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. This isn't... I mean, some of you are thinking, well, I don't have that problem. I don't ever work out. Whew! Finally, pastor's saying something that's not directed right at my soul. Actually, this is for all of us. Alistair Begg said that in every church, what you have is like you have at a football game in a stadium. You have 22 men who are absolutely exhausted, running their, their butts off. And then you have 40,000 people who are just sitting there watching. Think of spiritual health. There's a few people actually pursuing God. But most of us are just content to watch. Are you striving for that wreath? That wreath, that reward that's going to be withering up in just a few days? Are you pursuing godliness through Scripture, through doctrine, through sound doctrine and teaching and preaching? And study. Paul concludes this general rebuke by saying in verse 9, this saying is trustworthy and deserving full acceptance. I think most think that he's talking about what came previous to that when he says this saying. He's talking about this physical training, this focus on something else. It's deserving of of full acceptance. We need to daily feed upon God's Word. We need to daily commune with our God in prayer. We need to daily deny ourselves, Luke 9.23, and take up our cross and follow God. Hebrews 12.1 and 2, we need to daily mortify our sin as we run this race with perseverance. This is the way of grace and love. This is the way to pursue Jesus, our champion. We run the race with our eyes fixed on Jesus. This is the way to godliness. So to recap... We guard sound doctrine. This keeps us from heresy. We're nourished by sound doctrine, by our personal study in the Scriptures, by submitting ourselves to regular preaching and teaching throughout the week. And the effects of sound doctrine are godliness. Godliness for our souls rather than health for our bodies. In conclusion, he says in verse 10 that to this end we toil and strive. Because we have our hope set on the living God. To this end, we toil and strive. We strive to be like our Savior. We strive for godliness in our lives. We fix our eyes on our Savior. I do want to quickly address the next phrase, which I think is subject to some consternation. He says, we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Just really quickly, I want to talk about what Paul is saying. First of all, he's not saying that everyone in the world who's ever breathed is saved. Right? God is not the Savior of all people 
in that he's elected every single person in the world to salvation. That can't be the meaning. That would contradict the rest of Scripture. But there is a sense in which God is the Savior of all people, even those who reject him, because what does every sin deserve? Wrath. Immediate wrath. And if they don't get exactly what they deserve when they deserve it, they're being saved from it, aren't they? So Paul's saying that everyone in the world is being saved in some measure by God. Those who reject him are being saved in the sense that they actually get to live another day. And the word especially is our key. Because if he says especially, certainly he's, talking that there, he's saying that there's something else for us who believe. The salvation of the elect is different. We're especially saved. We're saved in the most important way. We're saved like the paralytic, where Jesus said your sins are forgiven. That's how we're saved. And for this reason, we're willing to pursue godliness and gratitude to God. For this, we toil and strive. Now, I just want to close with that, that last word, strive. In the Greek, it has this, it's not just striving like you're running hard. It's being reproached and being persecuted as well. There's a sense of striving against something or against the stream. We're swimming upstream when we pursue God. We train hard for godliness. We toil and strive. And yet this is not the way of the world. How do we do that? When we fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. I was encouraged actually by Joel Beakey a few weeks ago. I got to hear him speak. And he said, the people in my church, I've preached there for 35 years or something. And they tell me, Pastor, you preach the same things over and over. For 30 years, one woman said, I've heard you basically say the same things. Pursue Christ. Pursue Him in His Word. Pursue Him in prayer. Fix your eyes on Jesus. He said, that's okay. Because that's what we need to do. Our study of our Scriptures, knowing your doctrine, it protects you from heresy, it nourishes your soul, it glorifies God. And the Holy God is revealed in His Word. So we love it, we guard it, we cherish it. It's able to make us wise for salvation. So fix your eyes on your Savior and on His Word. Let us pray. Father in Heaven, we thank You for this wonderful opportunity to study Your Word. We thank You for Your Scriptures. We thank You for the doctrine that You've handed down from the apostles to us. We pray that we would guard it. Not just me, not just Jerry, but we would all guard doctrine in our hearts, in our souls. That we would be like Bereans pursuing the Scriptures, testing the doctrine to see if it's right and true, questioning things that we do not understand. Lord, let us always be a people who pursue You in spirit and in truth. Let the church be a buttress of the truth. And may we have great compassion on those around us who are deceived in some way, who have taken their eyes off of Jesus and pursued some minor doctrine to their own detriment. Thank you for preserving and protecting us. Thank you for your mercy and your grace to us. In Jesus' name we pray.